Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Good morning. I'm going to go ahead and just set this at the outset. I'll get as far as I possibly can in my message today. There is a whole lot that I want to cover as we begin today a brand new series in the book of Proverbs. And the objective in this series really is to understand the purpose of both the Proverbs as well as the wisdom that they uh, give to us, the wisdom that they share with us. So really important. Um, Just one thing, I I wanted to say happy birthday to Bob Briggs. That was this week, right? Right? How old are you? No, don't ask him how old he is. Anyway, so we're just going to leave it there. It's, I'm, glad you're, I'm glad you're doing well, Bob. Okay, guys, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I need to just jump right in. These are the words of God. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So over the next seven weeks, what we're going to do, and this will lead us right into Advent, over the next six, seven weeks, we are going to wade deep into the book of Proverbs. Um, we're going to look at several themes during this journey that we're on. Uh, for example, we're going to find out what the Proverbs say about pride and what the Proverbs say about humility. We're going to learn what the Proverbs say about righteousness, about purity, about truthfulness, Uh, We'll learn a lot about decisions and diligence in those decisions as per God's word, as per uh, faithful wisdom. Uh, We're going to wrap it all up by talking about generosity. We'll talk about friendship. And then the part that I'm looking the most forward to, and that is parenting with kindness. Parenting with kindness. Uh, Just depends on the day, honestly. But anyway, parenting with kindness. Today, however, what I want to do is I want to talk about the purpose of the Proverbs and the purpose of wisdom. These are the focuses for today, the purpose of the Proverbs and the purpose of wisdom. Uh, We're going to ask the question, what are these sayings for or how to use them over the next seven weeks? Uh, We'll also look at the authorship of the book of Proverbs, because I think that that will be surprising to many of you. This will bring into the discussion important uh, ideas concerning the inspiration of the biblical text. We need to understand what it means for the Bible to be inspired, and we need to toss out some of the mystical notions that I think we often hold. Um, This is going to lead us to asking how does uh, inspiration truly work? So we'll we'll get to that over the next couple of weeks. and while we're at it, we will, we will dispel the notion that the scripture came as some sort of spiritual download to every one of the writers. It's just not what the Bible tells us. So I know that that's shocking to some of you already, but uh, I think you'll be uh, encouraged and intrigued by the answer to what inspiration looks like. We're also going to learn the difference between a proverb and a promise. And if I can get there today, I will get there. Uh, But this is a vital difference. So often people read the Proverbs as promises, and they are not that at all. Okay? And this is really... hard for us to to embrace, okay? The Proverbs are not promises. The ramifications of this approach to believing that the Proverbs are, in fact, promises uh, are actually numerous, and they can be detrimental to our faith. Uh, What I mean by that is the second one of these Proverbs doesn't play out the way you think it should because you believed it was a promise. All of a sudden, you've lost faith. You've struggled to believe that God uh, was telling you something that he was never, in fact, telling you. Uh, I'll be sharing several examples of how Proverbs simply cannot always be interpreted or understood as if this, then this statements or promises. Uh, But I'm going to show you how they are so much more when we understand them rightly. So there's a real important piece to 
understanding these as proverbs and not promises. Everything that we're going to learn today will serve as a filter through which we see everything else. So if you're not here today, you need to watch online and study up, okay? So, and you need to send it to all of your uh, fellow church members. But it's going to serve as the filter. Uh, this, in my estimation, is truly practical, what I'm going to share with you today. Uh, oftentimes, people view practicality or practical things as simply physical actions or steps, behaviors to employ, i.e., when I leave church, how do I best serve Jesus? Don't cut people off in traffic. And that's probably awesome. It's partially true. But providing you with a correct way of interpreting the Scripture is absolutely practical. And the reason why it's practical is because it's a teach-a-man-to-fish kind of uh, approach, okay? This really does help you and I to understand how we interpret the Bible, how we understand it, uh, what we're supposed to lean on, um, all of those kinds of things. So I encourage you to, uh, to hang with me on that. So as we begin, I want to explain the purpose of Proverbs and the purpose of wisdom. Let's jump right into that piece. I think we can all see from verse 2 of chapter 1 that the Proverbs are intended to communicate wisdom. So therein lies a purpose of the Proverbs, to communicate wisdom. Verse 2 says, to know wisdom and instruction. How many of you want wisdom? How many of you want to know instruction? The rest of you just stubborn. I don't know what's happening right here. <laughs> Phil's over there like, whatever. Anyway, so, but wisdom and instruction. Uh, but why wisdom? That's an important question, right? Why wisdom of all things? Uh, it, it, I mean, isn't there, isn't there more things? Aren't we just supposed to learn how to, how to navigate life? Well, my argument is that that is where wisdom comes in. That's how we do this. Uh, people seem to wonder if they can't just meander through life any way they choose. And uh, the answer is no, you can't meander through life any way you choose. Uh, can't we just find our way to the great by and by or spend eternity with God? The answer is no. There's a process that God is bringing us through. Uh, the answer, again, is an emphatic no. It's not just a simple no. It's an emphatic no. And it is because wisdom is deeply connected, church, with the process of sanctification. We need the Proverbs because they teach wisdom, and we need wisdom because this is the process of sanctification that we're all going through. We're learning every day what it looks like to look more like the God uh, in whose image we were created. We know that what the Bible says is true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Don't you love the fact that Romans says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? It does not say all have sinned and fallen short. It seems to imply a perpetual reality of your goofiness, okay, and your sinfulness, right? So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reason why we fall short of the glory of God is not because we say a bad word or we tell a little lie or something like this. We fall short of the glory of God every time we do not reflect the image of God properly into the world. That is what it means to fall short. You know, sin is missing the mark, and you know what the mark was? Reflect the image of God perfectly, right? It's amazing how that works, and what happens when we don't reflect that image perfectly? We have missed the mark. We fall short of the glory of God. And we were called to rule and to reign just like Adam and Eve. Sanctification is the process by which we are being remade for our original purpose, that fallen short purpose. We, uh, we are to reflect the glory of God into the world. We are to rule it and reign it as per God's design. Now, one of the lessons that we learned from Adam and Eve in the garden is that they had a God-given responsibility to rule and to reign. We have to adopt this again because it seems we've fallen short of this. We, were, we really uh, start to understand the picture better when we actually have a right view of Eden. And this is going to, this will challenge some of you. Maybe you've never heard this, but I assure you this is ancient Christianity, what I'm about to share with you. Uh, Eden, as it's properly understood, uh, represents the temple of God. Eden represents the temple of God. God created a world, and then God planted a garden in the midst of that world. Temple language is all throughout the, the creation account. The purpose in any ancient literature 
for a temple was that of a dwelling place for a particular uh, deity, okay? And that's, that's what happens. If you have the temple of Dionysus or the temple of Zeus or the temple of Artemis, that is where that deity was, in, uh, was expected to dwell. And Eden was exactly where Yahweh designed uh, life, uh, designed his temple so that he could dwell. That's what his purpose was. This is the plan for restoration as well, just to prove my point to you. The Genesis account and the consequent fall of humanity are remedied in Revelation. When we get to the book of Revelation, what do we see? God creates a new heaven and a new earth. He establishes a new Jerusalem, and he makes a new temple that is constructed of his people. Uh, In this temple, God intends to dwell forever. Forever. This is the restoration plan, which shows us that was his intent in the beginning. It it was God's intent to dwell in Eden, and now it is God's intent to dwell inside of a new Eden, a new people, which is us, a new Jerusalem. From the original temple, mankind was tasked with going into the world and subduing it. So uh, this is kind of like us. We come together as Christians, uh, as Christ's body. We spend time in the presence uh, of God and one another, and we rest, and we rest in God's temple. We're empowered through that time of rest, and then we go out. We leave here hopefully, we leave here with a desire to reflect God's uh, glory into the world. For Adam and Eve, this required being fruitful and multiplying, right? This seems to be the only mandate humanity ran with. Anyway, of course, we perverted that mandate as well, but the point is that humanity was to go into all the world, reflect the image of God, uh, the very one who dwelt in Eden, the one who dwelt in their temple. Uh, my girls have all of these little glow-in-the-dark uh, magnet blocks. You guys familiar with these glow-in-the-dark kids' magnet blocks? And so what do you do with glow-in-the-dark things? You take them in front of a light, you shine the light on them, and then you get to go and play in the dark. Yeah, that's pretty much what they're designed for. So then they go into a dark room, and they're able to put these things together. But this really is exactly what's happening with us. We spend our time in the presence of God. We are filled with his truth, with his light, all of that. And then what do we do? We go into a dark world, and we take our God, our King, with us into all things as we rule and reign. This is where our story and the story of Adam and Eve overlap, uh, where we start to understand the need for wisdom uh, as I see it. Uh, Whether in our fallen condition or in Adam's original state, hear me out, church, uh, we were and are in need of training. How many of you know we're still growing? We're still learning. All the rest of you have fallen asleep on me. But so we are, we are in need of training. Although Adam has not sinned or had not sinned, he was clearly being taught by God as he moved along, right? Uh, he was told the mandate to name the animals. He was told to subdue the land. He was informed in a perfect state that he was in need of a helper and no suitable helper for him was found. All of this is him growing, him learning, him being trained in wisdom. He was being taught by God. The world was not created perfect the way we think of perfect. We think perfect means everything has a place and everything, you know, and a place for everything. That's kind of our view of perfect. This imagines a world where Adam and Eve simply had to hit a a button like on an assembly line to, uh, you know, maintain order in God's creation. But God didn't create a factory, church. He didn't create a factory. Instead, God created a world that was absolutely wild. The problem is, it's not wild as in sinful. It was wild for the purpose of God's image bearers going into that wild and subduing it and bringing it into order. And just in case that trips you up, God himself decided to start that way, didn't he? He created something that was formless and void so that he could shape it. Why? Why doesn't God just make it perfect? Because he's showing us how to do it. Isn't that amazing? So he shows us how to do it. He gives us a world that's wild. He gives us a world that needs to be subdued. And then he says, go out and shape that world. He could have made everything perfect at the outset, but he didn't. And as a result of this subduing, you and I, Adam and Eve, we will be uh, shaped and molded into the image of the creator God. This is important for us to capture and get our minds around. 
But as we know, uh, sin entered the picture, didn't it? Yippee, right? So sin tainted uh, us, and consequently, what did sin do? It stopped our communion with God. Back to this Eden story that I was telling you about. This is why the temple was effectively shut down. This is why Eden was removed or hidden from us. This is why the tree of life was taken from us. Humanity was cast out and prevented from communing with its king. Why? We were sinful and he is holy. We were sinful, we are sinful, and he is holy. And God doesn't work that way. Okay. Now, this would be uh, partially restored through a priesthood, and then it would be ultimately restored through a high priest, through King Jesus, who forever stands both as the tree of life as well as the arbiter between us and the Father. He is the tree of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is also the throughput to us, uh, to the Father, for us. As sons of Adam and as daughters of Eve, as C.S. Lewis would say, we are being sanctified to rightly reflect God's image into our world, and we are designed to do it. We are designed to do it. We bear his image. He is shaping us, he's molding us, and he's got a plan. Through the process of sanctification, through the process of gaining wisdom, through the process of learning meekness, which I'll get to in just a second, we are learning every day how to be refined and how to fulfill our particular calling. This is so big for us, church, with one of the key instruments of this process, of course, being wisdom. Wisdom, church, is a sharpening tool. Wisdom, church, is the fire that forges strength into the steel that you and I are made of. Maybe to give a little bit more humbling picture, uh, wisdom is the water to the dirt that we are to make us moldable clay, okay? So it's really, really important for us to capture this. Um, As we acquire wisdom, what we'll learn over time is that wisdom itself will begin to shape us. So isn't that amazing? We need wisdom. We need the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. We need wisdom. And then as we walk in that wisdom, it begins to shape us, begins to refine us. It begins to beat us uh, from a plowshare into a sword for the kingdom of God. This is connected with another biblical idea. I mentioned it just a second ago, which is the idea of meekness. Jesus said these words. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Why do the meek inherit the earth? Why why these people? Because this was God's created place for them in the beginning. But we have to understand what meekness even means. This does not mean that if you pretend meekness or if you act like you're meek, that you will inherit the earth or if you try to gain your own meekness. That's not the point. It actually means that the earth belongs to whoever is meek. And whoever is meek uh, requires uh, God's work, right? Those who are being shaped and molded through wisdom, through sanctification, are those who actually are uh, God's rulers and reigners inside of this world. So we ask the question, can we just get saved? And uh, can we just profess Jesus as Lord and and be saved and that's all good? And and to heck with works? The answer is no. It doesn't make sense. Why? Why? Because you were made to be shaped so that you could do his will. And if you're not doing his will, then you don't reflect the very one that you claim to believe in. I've defined meekness in the past as power under control. And and through explaining that, I've repeatedly given the image of a wild horse and a tame horse. And at every time that I give this illustration, I ask the question, which is stronger the wild horse or the tame horse? And it's a trick question, of course, because neither is stronger. What's the difference between the tame horse and the wild horse? That the power is refined, that the power has come under control. This idea of power under control is the product of wisdom. This is what wisdom is intended to do. What's the purpose of the Proverbs? To teach you wisdom. What's the purpose of wisdom? To make you meek. To refine you, to shape you, to mold you, to, to uh, cause you and I to reflect the image of God the right way. So all of, this is, uh, all of this is big as I see it. If you've ever attempted to learn music, you'll know, you'll know uh, 
what I'm talking about here, but you have to learn notes, you have to learn scales, you have to learn chord shapes, you have to learn a lot of stuff when it comes to music theory. Um, And you learn all of that and you practice all of that so that you have the information accessible to you when you need it. Amen? All the musicians out there are like, whatever. Anyway, so you, you, right, you, you need that information so that it's accessible when you need it. It's, it becomes second nature is what we like to say, okay? It becomes something that just flows from you. The purpose of wisdom is the same, right? If we will continue in it, if we, if we will uh, go through continued education, this is what church is about, this is what fellowship with other believers is about, it's like growing as any professional, A teacher is going to gain more and more wisdom. An engineer is going to gain more and more wisdom. A medical professional, the same way. Why? So that we can be ready to do the job at any point. Talk to any person who's been in the military. They will tell you that all of their training enabled them to be ready in the moment. That's why we're doing all of this. You need to be able to access information, or for us, wisdom, and you need to be able to access it without thinking. Now, on a side note, and this is going to punch somebody in the nose here, because I'm good at that, and I enjoy doing it, quite frankly, but uh, this is the reason why we're so ill-equipped in the church uh, in our relational responses. Uh, It's the same reason that musicians can't seem to improvise. I know many musicians, and I know many of them that can't improvise. Why? We simply do not saturate ourselves in our craft. We are not versed in what we need to be versed in. People neglect to saturate themselves in the wisdom of God, and then they wonder why they respond so poorly to their life. And instead of saturating yourself in wisdom so that you can respond properly, somebody sometime came along with the cockamamie idea that told you all that you should remove all the negative people from your life. That's the stupidest crap I've ever heard. Why? Because, sorry, why is that stupid? Because you can't remove negative people from your life. You're coming to church. I'm right here. Smile. Anyway, you can't, you can't remove negative people from your life, and you don't want to. What you want to do is learn how to think better. Learn how to be wiser. Because when you are, you'll respond properly. I can speak this from experience. Five years ago, I went through something I'd never want to go through. If I removed the negative people from my life, guess what I would not be? The man I am now. I have been fundamentally changed. God has wounded me. He has broken me. And yet it is beautiful. You remove all the negative from your life, and you are setting yourself up for failure. This is, a not, this is not good, church. This is not good. So we can't seem to do anything because we're ill-equipped. Why are we ill-equipped? Because we don't train in wisdom. We just, we just believe Instagram too much. We remove all the people from our lives. Stupid. Can you say it with me? Stupid. Okay, thank you. So back to the point. Nathan dismounts from his soapbox. Anyway, all of us need to be able to answer in the moment. And we can only do that with wisdom. And timing is key. In wisdom, there was a story about uh, uh, Sullenberger, what's his name, a pilot, uh, right? He flew and landed the plane on the Hudson. You guys remember this story, right? What is it? Scully? Scullenberger? Whatever. You guys are awesome. I'm dumb. Anyway, but here's the point of all of this. The point is that he needed to react that fast, didn't he? And guess what he did? He used his training and he reacted that fast. This is what wisdom training does for you. This is the purpose of the Proverbs. This is the purpose of wisdom. You want to circumvent that? Go ahead. But we're going to have far too many counseling sessions in my office. Anyway, so I like this rough definition of wisdom that I heard. Tremper Longman, uh, he's a pastor and a scholar, uh, theologian and a scholar. He's not a pastor. He says, wisdom is doing and saying the right thing at the right moment. Wisdom knows the right tool for the right job. That's huge. The right tool for the right job. If we are trained, uh, wisdom, sanctification, and meekness all turn out to operate the same way. They all operate the same way. It is power under control. When chaos, when trouble come into our life, when all of that arises, even when good times come, we're able to respond properly. 
These responses include verbal responses, physical responses, and even emotional responses. And we'll talk about those emotional pieces uh, in the coming weeks. These are, these are really cool things. Training in these responses plays out in many ways. And we don't have to go far into the book of Proverbs to see it. As a matter of fact, chapter 1 shows us that if we are trained in wisdom, we can discern when people are enticing us with riches uh, simply to take advantage of us, or even worse, to drag us down into the pit with them. And that, this happens a lot in our world. This happens a lot from politicians. <laughs> anyway, if we have wisdom, we will be able to discern these matters and respond accordingly. But if we, if we circumvent that, we're never going to get there. This is wisdom's purpose. It's training in righteousness. Okay, so a brief side note here. Wisdom is represented in all of, uh, in all of Scripture, not just the Proverbs. Okay? Why? If wisdom is about training us in righteousness, then all of Scripture is, is built for that. This is why Paul told us, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. And all of this wisdom plays out just like the fruit of the Spirit is intended to, or what Peter taught us in 2 Peter 1 when he told us that we should be diligent to add to our faith self-control and other things. The point is, when we learn wisdom, we're adding that wisdom to our faith, as we add that wisdom to our faith, our life shows automatic fruit, just like a fruit that grows on a tree, okay? So we add, we learn wisdom, we add it to our faith, and then it begins to, it begins to come out of our life. So what is the end of all of this training besides righteousness? Well, it's back to the creation mandate. It's back to that creation story I began with. Through Jesus, we once again have access to God's presence, The garden, the temple of God, is no longer shut to us. And from that presence, you and I get to launch into the world, subduing it for God's purposes. But we're going to need wisdom to do it. We're going to need wisdom to do it. The reason why it it seems that the church is so... lacks effectiveness in our world, uh, the reason why the church is ineffective seems to be because we've tried to do the ruling and reigning without the rule book. We've tried to do the ruling and reigning without the proper training. It's like trying to be a, a, a Navy SEAL without going through the training. You're going to get worn out and you're going to get it handed to you, if you know what I mean, right? So it's, this, is not, this is not a healthy way to look at life. So, so what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to endure this training. We're supposed to go through this. Then we can go into all the world. We can subdue it for God's purposes. And this is the responsibility that we were given even in the Great Commission. Go into all the world, teaching them all that I have commanded you, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God has been communicating this responsibility and this story since the dawn of time. What's the problem? It's been painted over with all of our gimmicky versions of the gospel. Lies that fool us into thinking that all God wants is for each of us to feel good about ourselves and live happy lives. You know you can feel good about yourself and live a happy life and never talk to God? Many of you do. I know, it stings. I'm not telling you that to condemn you. I'm telling you that to make a change. It's not good enough for us to believe these stupid gospels, these false gospels that talk about feeling good and living happiness. This false gospel siren call is, uh, is a call to selfishness, church. Uh, it has lulled us into a place of utter ineffectiveness. Remember this, our enemy doesn't need us sinning overtly, uh, committing these heinous moral evils to win. He just needs to render you impotent. He just needs to render you lukewarm. And the only antidote for this strategy of the enemy is to gain wisdom, is to be sanctified, is to become meek, and we become meek through the training that God has put us through or God wants to put us through. The purpose of wisdom is sanctification. The purpose of the Proverbs is to teach wisdom. And the wisdom, uh, wisdom's fruit in our lives will be automatic, but it will include discernment, righteousness, understanding, equity, prudence, and more. I love it. How many of you want to be loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle? How many of you want that? It takes training. And that training hurts. First-hand experience. That training hurts, but if you'll go through the training, it's amazing what it produces inside of you. 
It's amazing what it produces. Okay, we've understood the purpose of wisdom. We've understood the purpose of the Proverbs. Now we're going to deal with the book's authorship. Um, And I'll definitely not get through all of this today. But look at the book's authorship. Uh, It's very easy to stop with the first 25 uh, chapters of the book of Proverbs and conclude that these are only the, uh, the Proverbs of Solomon. Okay, that's what everybody does. Who wrote Proverbs? Solomon wrote Proverbs. Not exactly, right? After all, we, we have much evidence for this, right? Proverbs 1.1, it'll be on the screen. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? Proverbs 10.1, the Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Can I get an amen on that? I actually heard a mom say amen first. That was amazing. Amen. Anyway, Proverbs 25.1. These are also the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. These verses are very clear of one thing, but not more than one thing. They're clear of one thing, that Solomon contributed a whole lot to the book of Proverbs. However, there are many contributors to this book. Let me share a couple of observations about Solomon and who he says contributes to the work, and then we'll go to the other ones. Um, Included in Solomon's instruction, Solomon says something truly invaluable. This will be on the screen, and I want you to hear it very clearly. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Now, I want you to say this with me, church. And do not forsake your mother's teaching. That makes me happy. It really makes me happy. I'm going to hit on this in a later week, right, when we talk about parenting with kindness because I'm starting to sense every parent needs this lesson. But anyway, and I need it a lot, so I'll hit on it later. But the value of a mother in the Scripture, the value of women is integral to God's design. How integral is it? After God makes Adam and sets him in the garden and gives him some tasks to do, he goes, Dude can't do it, right? <laughs> right? Like, omniscient, you should have seen. No, anyway, the point was, he's, he's, we're learning something about, about how Adam works. And he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Man needs a helper. And no suitable helper was found for man except for, whoa, man, right, woman. That's what the term interprets. Anyway, <laughs> okay, so... It is just, whoa, man. Okay, so the point that I'm, you guys need to stop making me be goofy. It's your fault. Anyway, okay, so the, the point that I'm getting at here is that Solomon seems to acknowledge that, uh, that a mom is a key part, but women are key parts to God's design. We see this clearly spelled out within wisdom literature. Solomon himself shows that a key contributor to wisdom in the life of any child, is the teaching of mom. Thanks, moms. You guys are awesome. This is really important for you guys to understand. We need you deeply. Just a little food for thought, though. Uh, As we delve into the Proverbs throughout the coming weeks, the same Proverbs that communicate, and this is actually, I'm saying this to men, and specifically men of a certain uh, upbringing, but, but listen to what I'm about to say. Some, some Proverbs are the same Proverbs that communicate the problems of foolishness, which are personified, by the way, as a foolish woman, a wayward woman, also personify wisdom, not as a man, but as a virtuous woman. What's my point in this? Contrary to popular belief, the Proverbs aren't giving us a framework for how we are to view men versus women. It's not in the pages of the Proverbs. Not with respect to their intellect, not with respect to their uh, contribution to family or society. It's not about the difference in men and women. Anyone who reads into the text of Scripture, and trust me when I say this, there are many in the church who do, Uh, anyone who reads this kind of thing into the scripture is doing so unwittingly, I hope, uh, but they're reading their own modern cultural framework into the scripture. This is called eisegesis, and it's bad, right? We're adding to the scripture. Well, the proverb says that women are foolish. No, it does not. (laughs) It doesn't, right? It says that personified as foolishness is a wayward woman, and personified as wise is a virtuous woman. That's pretty awesome. And that's what I think a godly mom looks like. 
I think she looks like this beacon of wisdom, this beacon of hope for her children so that they might see what is right. So I want to encourage you with that, right? We're adding to Scripture when we read our cultural worldviews into the Scripture. Okay, so back to authorship. The Proverbs themselves indicate that full collection of Solomon's wisdom wasn't even compiled until a few hundred years after his death. So we have Solomon as a contributor. We have, uh, we have whoever Solomon's wife was in that view, because he had a lot of them. Anyway, so, so we have that, or the mother of the particular son. And then we have this full collection of Solomon's wisdom, which was compiled much later by Hezekiah's men, or wise men. Proverbs 25.1. These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. Solomon lived in the 10th century B.C., Hezekiah's compilation doesn't appear until the 8th through the 6th century, right? Some of what we read was added by these particular men much, much later, which also brings in a little-known idea when it comes to wisdom literature, and that is that the majority of wisdom literature, give me your attention, is a compilation, not authorship. And I'm going to wreck some worldviews here in just a second. Of course, all wisdom has to be authored by somebody. But what we have is majority a compilation, not majority an authored idea. So what about other contributors? Well, let's deal with one right off the bat. The king named Lemuel. Look at what it says in Proverbs 31.1. The words of King Lemuel. That's where most people want to stop. Let's keep going. The oracle which his mommy taught him. (laughs) That's my Nathan International Version. But anyway, so it's what his mother taught him. Although this is attributed to Lemuel, this is really huge. I hope you notice the actual source. The Bible itself tells us that the words of the great 31st chapter of Proverbs The Proverbs, the virtuous woman chapter, right, are actually those of a mom. Here we have one of those rare occurrences where the words that we read in inspired scripture are in fact the words of a wise, godly, and trusted woman. Similar examples include the songs of Miriam, the songs of Mary, as well as the implied instruction of Priscilla in correcting Apollos. Remember, the scripture says that Priscilla and Aquila corrected Apollos' gospel. Uh, We have Priscilla in correcting Apollos. We have Phoebe delivering the letter to the Romans. And delivering the letter to the Romans, whether people like this or not, meant that she read it to them. Wow. That's interesting, isn't it? So Phoebe reads the letter to the Romans. And then we have Lois and Eunice. Who are Lois and Eunice? Timothy's grandma and mom. And Paul says, these ladies made you who you are. Isn't that pretty cool? I love that, right? These women brought truths to live by. They spoke inspired words from God as per the scripture itself. This is imperative to remember when we have discussions about men and women, when we talk about their roles in God's world. We can argue all we want about people's opinions, but we have to remember what the Bible actually says. And so what we see are the contributions of some really amazing godly and wise women. So Solomon was a large contributor. The men of Hezekiah compiled some of Solomon's ideas. Likewise, Lemuel was a compiler because his mom was the author, or at least she was the source of that original that original oracle. Uh, add to that, we have contributors such as a guy named Agur and the sages or the wise men. Let me give you a couple of, uh, couple of passages here. Proverbs 30 verse 1, the words of Agur, the son of Jacob, the oracle or a prophet of some kind. Proverbs 22 17, track the tenses here. This is so important. This is all about compilation. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, plural, the wise. And apply your mind to my singular knowledge. Isn't that cool? The very person who is speaking here has compiled words from the wise. From whoever else. From all of these other sources inside of this. Then Proverbs 24, 23 says this. These also are sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judgment is not good. That very proverb there, to show partiality in judgment is not good, comes on the back of this is the sayings of the wise. Whoever those wise guys are. And not just the sound team back there, right? So, okay. So all of this leads to, I have bad jokes today, but they'll keep coming. And if you want to go golfing later, 
I'll keep them coming there too. All of this leads to, everybody quit, Roger, anyway. All of this leads to challenging truths concerning what is called, according to scholars, as A and E, or ancient Near Eastern literature. Although we know that Solomon's wisdom is of divine origin, 1 Kings 3, 1 through 15, how it comes is what screws people up. Okay, that's what confuses people. The Queen of Sheba visited to hear Solomon's wisdom because everybody in the ancient Near East traveled and went to hear other people's wisdom. Now Solomon's was considered greater. Listen to what 1 Kings 4, 29-34 says. This is really important. It's on the screen. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind. That sounds like a cool descriptor. Like the sand that is in the seashore. You guys have heard this phrase before, right? God gave Abraham children as numerous as the sand on the seashore. This is simply a phrase that says he gave him a lot of kids. And he gave Solomon wisdom that was greater, surpassed everybody else. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Other translations render it this way. The the wisdom of Egypt was great, but Solomon's wisdom was greater. This is really important for us to understand because the Bible acknowledges that wisdom was great elsewhere. But it was greater through Solomon, and it was greater through Solomon because of how much of it there was, how much of it was pulled together, and what it spoke of. Listen to what it goes on to say. It says, for he was wiser than all men. He was wiser than Ethan. But that's not hard. He was wiser than Heman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahol. His fame, his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. Zip it. Anyway, his, his fame was, his, you guys are awesome, was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. That's a songwriter right there. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Sounds pretty awesome, right? Notice that Solomon's wisdom was simply greater than that of those of Egypt or the sons of the east. To acknowledge that there was sound wisdom in the world is clearly biblical. That's there, right? In other words, Egyptians and other cultures, smart people, that's fine, no big deal. Solomon's wisdom was greater. The understanding of this is vital for what I want to show you next. What we learn about ancient writings often unsettles people. Let me give you a few examples. And this is where we'll end today. I just want to give you some examples. This will send you home all kinds of weirded out with Nathan. But I promise, I'll bring it together next week. I promise. In Aramaic literature, there was a man named Ahikar. Can you say that with me? Ahikar. Okay? It's, it's spelled A-H-I-Q-A-R. Ahikar. And he wrote what is considered the earliest uh, international book of world literature. Not wisdom literature, but world literature. Notice that Solomon's wisdom included uh, more than traditional wisdom. It included things like horticulture or zoology, things about animals, things about plants. This is all part of what the ancient Near Easterners called wisdom. It wasn't just pithy statements about, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness or some nonsense, right? That's not what it was. It was, it was bigger than that. And so this is why Ahikar's book is referred to as world literature and not just world wisdom. But listen to what Ahikar says. He was, he was alive approximately in the 7th century. He said this, see if this sounds familiar. Spare not your son from the rod, otherwise can you save him from wickedness? Should sound familiar to you, right? Why does it sound familiar to you? Because Solomon wrote a similar thing three centuries before, okay? A similar thing, which then proves again my point, wisdom in the ancient Near East was a compilation, not about authorship necessarily. It's a compilation. Here's what Solomon said in Proverbs 23, 13, and 14. Do not hold back discipline from your child. Although you strike him with the rod, maybe we should do more of that, he will not die. Did you know that? Unless you're just stupid, but he, he will not die, okay? You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. This is, this is helping your child not die. Okay, in the case of Ahikar, it is most likely that Solomon influenced him, right? 
This seems to be the case. It could be that he came up with that all by himself, but it seems likely that he was influenced by Solomon's writing. So let's go the opposite way, because this ruffles people's feathers. Let's go the opposite way. A few hundred years before Solomon, which means it was before David too, a guy by the name of Amenemope. Now I want you to say that one with me. Amenemope. Come on, guys, you got to get with me. Amenemope. Yes, that's awesome. I'm on a moped. Anyway, okay, Amenemope says this Guard yourself from robbing the poor. For those of you out there, a moped is a bike that you, anyway, you guys don't even know what a moped is anywhere. Okay, guard yourself from robbing the poor, from being violent to the weak. Amenemope 4, 4, and 5. Solomon, several hundred years later. Do not rob the poor because he is poor. You can rob him if he's otherwise. No. <laughs> or crush the afflicted at the gate. You see the similarity in these ideas? Here's what makes it challenging. Why does some heathen culture, not associated with the Jewish people, care what you do with the poor? Isn't this a Jew- Jewish ethic? Isn't this a Judeo-Christian ethic? Don't we need Jesus for this kind of thing? Ah, interesting. Interesting. Couple hundred years before, you have a heathen world saying the exact same idea. Let's look at another one. And this one gets a little bit more precise in its language. Amenemope 22, 16, and 17. As for the scribe who is experienced in his office, he will find himself worthy to be a courtier. A courtier is somebody who stands in the court of the king. He is with the high officials. He is among... um, a better class in that day and age. Now listen, this is what Solomon says a few hundred years after. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Wait a second. Aren't we just copying now? Aren't we copying now? Let me explain what's happening. The list can go on and on too regarding wisdom literature from ancient times. They talked about drunkenness, greed, covetousness, unjust weights and measures. They talked about not moving boundary markers of land, which seems like something that would be uh, really specific to Jewish people. The point of all of this is that we observe in the historical text an international context and a compilation component of wisdom literature. This in no way affects inspiration. And I'm going to drive the point home in here in just a second. Once we realize this, it's not that much of a shock or shouldn't be that much of a shock for us to realize that Israelite wisdom was shared with Egyptians, Mesopotamians, and the Aramaics, and vice versa. It works both ways. And even though we have good reason to think that the Israelite sages uh, knew and learned from the wisdom of the broader broader ancient Near Eastern context, the Israelites would have likely concluded that the ancient Near Easterners that came before them, they would have concluded that those men and women stumbled across the truth that they observed while the Israelites glorified God because of it. This is where we see God's gracious nature to all men. This is what some refer to as common grace. Just as he causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on Everybody, on the just and the unjust, on all, he has also given wisdom to all kinds of people. This does not mean there are many ways to God. This does not mean that everybody gets to point, like Oprah says, a giant wheel, God's the hub, and all the spokes lead to the center. Nonsense. Jesus is still the only way. But the reality The reality that God has been giving wisdom to people even before we had the Bible is a historical fact, guys, okay? And to compile all that still can be attributed to him, can be honoring to him. Uh, this, This is, it's just amazing in my opinion. You can look at this and see that Adam was given wisdom. Why? He was told what to do in the world that he was called to subdue. Noah was given wisdom. We can tell because he was told to build a boat because there was something coming. Job, which is considered the oldest book in the canon of Scripture, prior, even prior to Moses' writings. It is dated earlier. 
Job was given wisdom. For that matter, Abraham himself, who becomes the fountainhead of the Jewish nation, was given wisdom. God gave standards and wisdom to the Amalekites and the Amorites, although they were not his people, according to uh, our understanding of that. They weren't Jews. How do we know this to be true? Because they were judged for sinning against God way before the law was given. There was available wisdom, which they knew and they were held accountable to. Again, what is this? Common grace. It is the graciousness of God to all mankind. Scripture says even the skies declare the wonders of who God is. Why do they do that? So that no man will have an excuse All of this helps to speak to things like pop psychology and godly wisdom and philosophy and all of those pieces because you don't have to throw everything out just because you're a Christian. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul warns the people not to be taken captive by human philosophy. Listen to Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Here's the key line. According to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Paul is establishing a contrast between wisdom and philosophy that are in accord with the world or in accord with God, not themselves, right? He is not warning that any thought that comes out of a human being's mouth is to be avoided, Make sure you understand this. The test of whether or not it is to be taken, accepted, or avoided is governed by whether or not it points to Christ or whether or not it points to the issues of our world, to the human nature and sinfulness. Paul would be throwing out the very source of his Bible, Solomon's writing, who compiled a lot of things from a lot of men and a lot of women. Very important for us to keep our minds wrapped around this. There are so many things, including what we've just read about Amenemope uh, and uh, Ahikar, that were written down by human beings, but were clearly in accordance with God's principles. So here's something we have to remember. People are going to give advice. What we have to do, why we need to be trained in wisdom, church, is so that we can discern whether or not it is of God or it is of this world. Amen? Your mama told you lots of good things. You're just too stupid to hear it, right? Now, if you trust in God's word and you listen to what he says and you're able to gauge those things, you'll know when mama is on Jesus' side or when mama just wants you to do what she says. Okay, And that happens a lot too. But my point is we need wisdom. So, so here's, here's how I'll wrap it up today. The purpose of the Proverbs is what? To communicate wisdom. What is the purpose of wisdom? Sanctification. It is being made meek. Why do we need that? You and I are called to rule and reign in this world. We cannot do it without proper training, church. So for the next six weeks, we're going to look at proper training. We're going to beat it up. We're going to find out what it is that we need to understand and what it is that we need to know. Next week, I'll start off by talking briefly about inspiration, and then I'll go to promise versus proverb, and then we'll jump right in to what we're going to talk about, okay? So I encourage you guys to be here.